You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. For some years now, I have already had the privilege to engage in ideas with the centers, you know, Peter Butke, Virgil Storr, and Stephanie. And as a sociologist, I, I greatly appreciate their cross-disciplinary bridge building, including teaching courses in economic sociology, which is arguably a first for a US economics department. And actually I have had the pleasure to speak with uh, Peter's uh, students at one of his seminars. And today what I wanna do is continue building bridges by sharing with you some pandemic inspired insights um, about how money works. As you know, all of us too painfully know, the terrifying COVID-19 pandemic appended lives around the globe, and the world of money was certainly also shaken by its impact. Alongside financial devastation, we saw other uh, uh, developments. We witnessed a stunning whirlwind of novel currencies, and you know, most visibly. As cryptocurrencies broke into the mainstream, we watched often stunning price fluctuations in the diversifying digital economy. And meanwhile, talk of central bank digital currencies intensified as contactless payments gained dominance. And you remember headlines predicting the end of cash that proliferated even as cash holdings increased. Now, this multiplication of monies and novel payment systems increasingly challenge the singular power of government-backed legal tender and the very ways we think and use money. But I want to move away from attention-grabbing cryptocurrency news, where we find less visible yet consequential social developments concerning the world of money. And that's what I want to talk with you today. And this is the plan for the next like 49 minutes. I will first identify uh, three pandemic money puzzles. One, the surge in donated money. Second, the resilience of remittance money. And third, the gender of household money. And after considering alternative explanations for those puzzles, I will make a case for the power of sociological answers. And overall, the analysis centers on money's multiple meanings rather than its multiple material forms. And I speak to you as a sociologist, who as Peter told you, I've been engaged, you know, I've been thinking about money for over 40 years. And along with other social science uh, uh, colleagues, we've been sort of stealthily taking money away from economists' intellectual, quote, pocketbooks, converting those allegedly fungible and impersonal currencies featured in economics textbooks into socially and morally meaningful tokens. The pandemic made such social and moral dimensions increasingly hard 
to ignore. Most notably, of course, the pandemic, as you know, forced public debates about the relative value of life over the money lost by protecting those lives. And in fact, early in the pandemic, the widespread determination to close businesses for the sake of saving lives surprised even the savviest experts. But there were other money surprises. And I want to start with my first puzzle, donated money, and the unforeseen increase in various forms of charitable donations, even from donors that were themselves under economic stress. So as the global pandemic shattered lives and livelihoods, experts had somberly predicted, anticipated a decline in philanthropic donations. After all, the 2008 Great Recession had led to a dramatic reduction in charitable giving. Yet, remarkably, despite those concerns, monetary donations surged during the early days of the pandemic. Some ex examples, the wave of pandemic-inspired charitable giving included in 2020 donations in the United States by individuals, bequests, foundations, and corporations that reached a high of 471 plus billion. On top of gifts to traditional nonprofits, there was a noticeable surge, and you will remember this too, in direct money transfers as people gave digital cash gifts to struggling family, friends, neighbors, and small businesses, including more generous tips to workers risking their health, such as grocery delivery workers and even store clerks. Others gave money indirectly, ordering takeout from neighborhood restaurants, purchasing gift cards from local stores, or continuing to pay workers for services that they could no longer provide, such as house cleaning, daycare, hair cutting. And then you had crowdfunding campaigns that proliferated to support healthcare workers or help families pay for food, living expenses, medical bills, and funerals. Some Twitter personalities jumped into the fray, offering to pay their online followers most urgent bills. Frequently, notice that these pandemic donations involved small sums of money. One example, the author Roxanne Gay's Twitter invitation, quote, if you are broke and need to stock up on groceries, I will venue $100. Then you had newly energized mutual aid groups that multiplied, providing cash along with other forms of support. I had one of my Princeton graduate students already overburdened by his own uh, responsibilities that dedicated himself to a volunteer-based Philadelphia mutual aid organization. He told me about the weekly distributions of cash as local recipients who had lost jobs and income, many of them unbanked, lined up to get some help. Or consider the case of students around the U.S. and their organization of mutual aid networks to help their peers pay for housing, medical care, or food during the pandemic. This was outside any uh, formal university structure. The students raised thousands of dollars in small donations, distributing them to recipients via Venmo or other apps. Meanwhile, you had 
grassroots organizations such as Pay It Forward or Share My Check that directed donors' relief funds to a wide range of worthy causes like rent support for those facing facing eviction or relief for undocumented uh, immigrants. And then the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation that built on the precedent established by the extraordinary flow of donations to racial justice groups in response to the killing of George Floyd in 2020, they institute their own survival fund. One of its recipients noted that the money symbolized community bonds, drawing from, quote, our history of being able to support each other is how we show love. Now, what particularly intrigued me was the U.S. stimulus checks that triggered their own novel gift economy. While most recipients, you know, used the government-issued subsidy for there were urgently needed funds to cover ordinary household expenses, there was a in 2020 there was an estimate that about 11 to 13 million Americans gave away some or all of their stimulus checks or plan to do so by donating it to charity or family members. Then you have some that even customized their gift. An Alabama teacher, for instance, who kept his job during the pandemic, donated anonymously part of his stimulus money to pay for three of his students' family utility bills. And there's more. The stimulus check economy created novel arrangements. Lana Swartz, she's the author of a wonderful book called New Money. And she observed how some young people were serving as intermediaries for the elderly. They helped them convert the relief checks into cash. And she told me about the, someone cashing their elderly mother's relief check and then distributing the money to the mother's nursing home cares as a thank you gift, but also sort of as a doubling up as a kind of quasi-bribe plea for special care. Even Harvard uh, Business School students organized their own MBA COVID-19 stimulus money donation campaign urging students to donate their stimulus checks to local residents or local businesses. And students were encouraged to, quote, donate the amount you feel comfortable with, your entire stimulus check, HBS printing refund or HBS fitness center fee. Therefore, you know, they were intermingling what I would see as state-issued monies with Harvard local currencies. Now, let me note that attempts to quantify exactly how much money Americans gave in this expanded charitable landscape are still in progress. And also, let me point out that stimulus money donations were not an exclusive U.S. phenomenon. It's just one example. In 2020, after Israel distributed one-time universal grants to its citizens, a survey found that around 14% of the 998 recipients reported either donating the grant or using the money to help family or friends. Okay, so let me go to what the second puzzle. The resilience of remittances, those crucial monetary transfers sent by migrants overseas to their home countries. Migrant remittances, as some of you, uh, of course, know, are a wonder to behold. Almost any time 
substantial numbers of low-wage migrants move in streams from low-wage areas to distant high-wage areas while leaving significant numbers of relatives behind, remittance systems spring up. And they do so without any globally available cultural model, any promoting worldwide organization, or any legal requirement. And yet, they operate in surprisingly similar ways across the globe, with migrants at their destinations regularly earmarking major shares of their usually meager wages for transmission to home folks. So what happened to remittances during the pandemic? An alarmed World Bank had predicted a severe drop of 20% in global migrant remittances for 2020 as a result of the economic crisis. Not an unreasonable projection if we consider the downturn in remittance flows that took place during the 2008 Great Recession. But it turned out to be the wrong prediction. Instead of declining, a 2021 World Bank report of 20, uh, for 2020 remittance flows showed that despite economic uh, hardship, remittances to low and middle income countries were, you know, they were bit down, but only by just 1.6% from the year before. That was lower than the 11% decline in foreign direct investment flows to those countries. And according to some estimates, a few countries even registered increases in remittance flows. So this survival of remittances matters because in aggregate, these small transfers constitute the most significant capital source for developing economies ahead of foreign direct investment. And even during ordinary times, remittances often take priority over migrants' own bills and expenses. Indeed, research suggests that most people at both ends of migration streams attach moral significance to remittances and shame to those who fail to pay what's expected. Migrants' remission, you know, this financial commitment hardly wavered as the economic crisis of 2020 intensified. And just to get a better understanding of this grip of remittances, listen to what Elias Bruno, a 31-year-old construction worker in Panama City, Florida, who supports five relatives in Mexico, told a New York Times reporter, and I, and I quote, we're struggling here, but it's worse in Mexico. You have to make every sacrifice to feed your family, even if that often meant dipping into hard-earned savings. It is fitting, therefore, that a World Economic Forum report called remittance senders the, quote, frontline workers of economic security. Okay, so let us turn now to the third and, and really very different kind of money puzzle, the gendering of pandemic household money. While donations and remittances flow across households, the gender puzzle exists within households. And what I'll do is I'll start by reading you a letter that was sent by a distressed wife seeking advice from MarketWatch's financial specialist about what? About her household's stimulus check. And I quote from that letter. She said, my husband refuses to give me the stimulus check from his savings account. 
He says that I don't deserve it because I didn't earn it. What's my best course of action? Calling it a case of financial abuse, the expert declared that the husband had no legal right to withhold the money. Meanwhile, there were more than 200 readers' responses to the wife's complaint, mapping out a world of controversy over husbands' and wives' differential rights to stimulus checks. To be sure, some readers you know, treated such disputes lightly. The wife, one reader, for example, jokingly suggested should just quote, stop cooking his dinner and washing his clothing. When he complains about it, she needs to say, what have you done to earn having me work as a slave for you? But most reactions revealed deeply felt divides over, quote, his and hers competing financial claims and respective entitlement to the stimulus money. Reports from the U.S., the United Kingdom, and Australia go further painting an even darker version of stimulus money appropriation with abusive men pocketing the wife's stimulus check, thereby limiting her options to leave. Now, setting aside those uh, ominous extremes, domestic disputes over stimulus checks open up other questions about how the pandemic intruded into household economies. What happened, for instance, to the division of household monies as around the world, the pandemic caused more mothers than fathers to leave paid employment in order to attend to unpaid childcare and homeschooling. As women lost their earned income, did they also lose decision-making power as to how much money to spend, when and on what? This gendering of money is not new. In my own investigations of United States households, I found many gender puzzles, namely around the earmarking of women's earnings. Examples, you know, what explains that even when husbands and wives earn similar amounts of money, women's money are often designated for particular expenses children's education, vacations, babysitting expenses, treated, therefore, as a different and somehow secondary kind of money than their husbands? Or why is it that mothers tend to devote a greater share of their money to their children and family needs, while husbands are more likely than their wives to retain separate personal spending money? And indeed, you know, microcredit and conditional cash transfer programs frequently base their programs on such gendered uh, patterns. These patterns, by the way, extend to the immigrant remittances we were just discussing. In, uh, in an older study of interviews with Salvadorans in the U.S. between 2004 and 2006, but this holds, sociologist Abrego discovered that mothers, despite earning significantly lower wages than their husbands, were more likely than fathers to regularly send their hard-earned savings to their children back home. And they did so often at the expense of their own welfare. Now, when it comes to the gendering of pandemic money, 
we only have anecdotal reports right now. We still don't have enough data. People are working on this to provide systematic answers. We don't know, for example, if women have been more likely than men to spend that stimulus check for household expenses, but we should be paying close attention. So those are the puzzles. So how do we make sense of these three pandemic money puzzles? Why did direct donations surge and remittances remain stable at a time of such economic fragility and employment precarity? Why give away your relief check or sacrifice your own precarious economic welfare by sustaining your family abroad? And why should gender matter to the allocation of household monies? Shouldn't gender, shouldn't money be gender neutral? More generally, why do people earmark or distinguish among their monies in sometimes surprising ways? And we certainly cannot find fully satisfying answers in standard monetary theory. Why not? Because according to the firmly established fungibility assumption, it's just not possible to differentiate among monies. Each U.S. dollar, for instance, serves as a perfect substitute for any other U.S. Uh, dollar, regardless of its sources, how it is earned, by whom, who spends it, on what it is spent. All money in this view is the same. As the saying goes, a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. All that matters is how much money we have, not which money. So for a standard economic account, money's efficiency depends on its impersonality. Any moral, sentimental, or cultural earmarking uncomfortably disrupts money's anonymity. What about moral philosophers or social critics well, it's not that much more helpful. In contrast to economists' fungible money, here we do find real concern for money's moral implications, but typically only for its damaging effects. While the pandemic made us fearful about physically dirty cash, fears of morally dirty money have a long history. In what I call the corrupting money model, money is morally suspect, inevitably tainting our personal relations with cold-blooded economic calculation. The corrupting money model, therefore, has little to say about any morally or socially uplifting monetary earmarking. To be sure, the economic money and the corrupting money models are sometimes right. But what I'm saying is that they tell us only part of the story and not nearly enough to help solve our three money puzzles. So I want to make a case for a third, quote, social money model to better explain how money really works. With this social money model, let us think of money as a deeply cultural, social, and moral medium. And in the process, let us rethink the fungibility assumption by focusing on monetary earmarking. By earmarking, I mean the differentiation of monies based on cultural meanings or social relationships. Once you insert that social lens, your monetary vision expands as you no longer see only one money, but instead of 
kaleidoscope of multiple monies with multiple meanings and moralities. That's why we don't always just care about the amount of money we receive or give, but also about which money is involved. That's why the source of our money often matters for how we spend it, and importantly, why it matters for whom or with whom we use, save, or invest money. Not all dollars are equal. One example, this is from earlier research that I, in which I studied the surprising popularity of Christmas saving clubs in the United States in the early 1900s. From a standard economic perspective, those low or no interest savings accounts seemed irrational restrictions on spending. But I discovered that most depositors were home working class wives that seemed to have relied on the clubs as an institutional device to earmark holiday monies and importantly, keep them away from other household members, usually their husbands. Indeed, the Christmas money was often reserved for domestic necessities, such as washing machine or a daughter's new coat. For wives, that is seemingly irrational earmarking of Christmas money increased, albeit weekly, their financial autonomy vis-a-vis -vis their husband. Certainly, and surely some of you are thinking about this, then maybe we can talk about this later, the important theory of mental accounting makes parallel observations about monetary differentiation. But notice a key difference. Mental accounting theory focuses on individual cognitive partitions rather than this relational social process that we're discussing today. The difference matters. Relational earmarking broadens our analysis by showing how relations to others, as well as moral imperatives, shape people, our monetary practices. One notable example, the case of a child's college fund. We have strong evidence that parents may sometimes be willing to borrow money at a high rate of interest to pay for, I don't know, a home renovation, instead of using, drawing the money that they have saved in a child's low interest rate education fund. What's more, a terrific experimental study of financial risk taking, and if any of you are interested in references, I'm glad to send them, right? Well, this study found, um, they proposed a theory of relational investment, and they found precisely that a child's college savings account was the most conservative portfolio among respondents, averaging one-third less risk than a personal investment account. Risk tolerance, their study shows, is not only lower when investing for others than oneself, but it varies significantly depending on who is that other person for whom the money is being invested, in this case, one's child. Why? From a relational perspective, college funds represent and reinforce meaningful parent-child family ties. The earmarking is relational. Now, this kind of Socially meaningful monetary earmarking is widespread. 
if all money is the same, why do we label some money's blood money and others honest dollars? Why are the thousand dollars we earn as a salary often spent differently than the same amount if it's a lottery winning? Why do we frequently spend inherited money differently from earned money? And how do we distinguish among bribes, donations, gifts, and payments for goods and services, or differentiate charitable donations from welfare payments? Consider also why do organizations construct elaborate compensation systems marking differences between salaries, bonuses, perks? And this, I studied a bit of this. How is a Christmas bonus distinguished from a gift or a tip? And when does that yearly bonus, as has happened in the early 20th century in the United States, become a legally enforceable entitlement in some situations? These are not just irrational distinctions, nor is it like a trivial intellectual game, which money is which, you know, you know for fun. These cultural and moral differences we make among monies, regardless of the amount of money involved matter for our social relations to others and have concrete economic and often legal consequences as well as policy implications. And we could talk about this a lot. Just think of the child tax credit and the impact of earmarking money for children in this case. The deposit arrived into family mailboxes labeled as a child CTC and was more likely to be spent on children. We all care deeply about such monetary distinctions because the wrong kind of money, yeah, sometimes it's funny and may amuse us, but very often it will upset us or offend us. Just imagine my shock if one of my students offered me a thick envelope of four, you know, $100 bills as an incentive to teach a better class. Or if you paid your employee with gift certificate instead of a salary. Or if you offered your spouse a tip as a thank you for a good meal. Why do such mistakes, both grand or small, matter? Because mistakes violate deeply held cultural expectations of how our relations to others should work. Now, once we recognize this social, cultural, and moral multiplicity of money, our three money puzzles start making more sense. And in the case of donations and remittances, it helps us understand why pandemic money might have broken that precedent established by the Great Recession the dip that happened then in those types of transfers. So let, let me go a little bit on more on this, right? On increased donations, it's I propose that at least one a good explanation is that during the pandemic, money took on new social meanings. At a time of excruciating social distancing, when quarantine rules separated us from one another, money became a social connector bridging the physical gap by allowing us to express concern for intimates and strangers. And again, notice the seeming paradox, cold cash, the supposedly ultimate transactional medium alchemized into a warm social currency, strengthening multiple social bonds and enhancing local community solidarity. 
Notice also that pandemic money could be earmarked in multiple ways, as it was, right? It was could be, it could serve as ordinary charity or as mutual aid, as a personal gift, just a, or a, a large tip, depending on what, on the social connections between giver and recipient. It also explains why the stimulus check was often earmarked as a morally fraught source of income. Why didn't recipients, even those without urgent need for the funds, just save the extra money? As a, a, I read the report, of an economics-trained reporter was puzzled in, in a story she wrote, and she recognized that the stimulus check arrived somehow imbued with, quote, a moral obligation. It prompted conversations among her own friends about the right way to spend the money, such as supporting the community by buying gift cards from a local bookstore or salon. So contra-fungibility, the source of stimulus money, mattered. To be sure, and you may be thinking this, economics and technology also mattered in pandemic transfers. Jonathan Meir, who is an expert in the economics of charitable giving, suggests that the pandemic differed from the Great Recession because, quote, between government transfers and reductions in discretionary spending, many households found themselves in a better financial situation during the pandemic. Of course, that was a bit later in any case. But what he's saying, as a result, many people were more able to donate. And also technology, virtual payment systems, such as PayPal, Venmo, Apple Pay, or, or sites like GoFundMe, which were not available or not as widely adopted in 2008, allow for cheaper, faster, and more personalized uh, money transfers. But neither technology nor economics can fully explain the pandemic puzzles. The puzzles of why amid financial uncertainty and menacing physical peril, people would part with their money. I'm suggesting that in this bizarre uh, pandemic world, money served as an unexpected social bridge. After all, despite the profound class, race and gender disparities that, uh, that existed in the pandemic's effects, everyone became physically vulnerable. And this created a kind of collective trauma that had not existed in the 2008 financial crisis and that may have resulted in greater solidarity. And just remember, we all were reading about heads of government, movie stars, Tom Hanks, even other prominent figures that got COVID-19 and our friends and our family and our colleagues. You know, even economist Mir acknowledged to me in a, in a communication that there was some amount of coming together all too briefly in the early days of the pandemic that played a role in increasing donations. As it turns out, a few days, only a few days ago, I discovered, and I don't know if, is Virgil in the audience, Virgil Storr? Okay, I discovered your paper, Virgil, and with co-authors that unexpectedly helped me better understand my own arguments. So what do they do? The, their, their article, their research tracked the consequential loss of what they describe as commercial friendships during the pandemic. Those interactions that take place at many locations, such as stores, gyms, hair salons, restaurants, and workplaces. And some of those interactions, of course, involve only short-term, very short-term weak tie connections, but others develop into a slightly longer term or even friendships. And those were all 
painfully interrupted during the pandemic. And I hope I got this right, Virgil. Once again, as I see that, it, we can, quote, diagnose pandemic donations as alternative forms of relational connectivity. Okay, so what about the second puzzle, the resilience of migrant remittances among low-income populations? This makes sense once we understand those international monetary transfers, not only as financial lifeboats for families abroad, but also as powerful monetary representations of non-negotiable family and ethnic solidarities. Here, solidarity trumps fungibility, as remittance monies are earmarked as separate currencies, endowed with a special form, destination, and quasi-sacred significance. Third puzzle, that gendering of pandemic money within households. Why did the husband, in our example, feel entitled to what was in fact an illegal ownership of his wife's stimulus check? And further research will illuminate the missing pieces of specific pandemic gender puzzles. But we can still ask why more generally are women and men's money is often treated as different kinds of currencies, regardless of amount. These gender puzzles can only be unlocked by acknowledging the enduring grip of accumulated cultural meanings re regarding gender within households that shape how different monies are allocated and spent. So here, gender trumps fungibility. Now, I, I will end in the next few minutes with a broader question. Can the social model of money survive in the increasingly anonymous 21st century world of cyber currencies? Or will technology finally squash money's social and moral lives? And some of you surely have read Margaret Ad, you know, Adwood's best-selling Chilling Dystopia, The Handmaid's Tale, or, or you know, tuned into the what has become a streaming phenomenon. And there in that novel, the systematic state oppression of women, and you some of you may remember, it was first established by replacing all cash with tokens and then forbidding women any access to their Gilead CompuBank accounts. Totalitarianism, speculates Offred, the novel's main character, may have been facilitated by the absence of portable money. Now, uh, some social forecasts are more uplifting. The late uh, visionary, and it breaks my heart to say late because Nigel Dodd, that some of you may know from LSE recently passed away, brilliant scholar of money. He boldly predicted a promising scenario of what he called uh, multiple utopian monies, ranging from emerging social modes of financing, such as crowdfunding and peer-to-peer -peer lending arrangements, to the local monies created by communities to foster their social ties and reduce inequality. Now, we can also hope that the pandemic's surprising monetary generosity in which virtual monies played a key role might lead to more sustained and enduring economic solidarity. 
According to Benjamin Soskis, who's a specialist in philanthropic history, the expansion of per, specifically of person-to-person cash transfers with few strings attached could encourage norms of support, you know, supporting, and I quote, solidarity and trust in the decision-making of recipients. By dropping the suspicion and demands for surveillance and accountability that comes with monetary grants, he says, pandemic donations are another of the ongoing experiments in direct cash aid that are going on right now that could promote a more respectful and effective way to help others. Now, let me be clear. Charitable donations and remittances preceded the COVID-19 crisis. And these private flows of cash often fill in as a stopgap for the dismal limitations of state safety nets. And we still don't have enough research to predict if and for how long pandemic trends will persist. I actually checked a little bit of that and I can I don't want to go over my time promised time, but I can tell you a little bit. I don't have much on that. But because of those caveats, we should not dangerously over-sentimentalize private transfers, lest they start to be seen as replacement for dignified state provision of aid. But perhaps in the use of money to maintain connection, and this is uh, the anthropologist Bill Moore, another expert in money, who speculates maybe we might be able to discern a new ethics of exchange. Just imagine if the money that flowed during the pandemic could be a model for how we can be brought closer together and how we can transcend rather than reproduce our nation's entrenched political partisanship. So which will it be, utopia or dystopia? Whatever our post-pandemic futures bring, once uh, I am modestly suggesting that once we recognize money's multiplex social and moral features, we will be able to better explain and maybe even solve newly emerging monetary puzzles. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.